0: Father, we thank you for this time. and We're talking about wisdom through trials, Lord, although we'll be praying for Rachel and Jameson, uh, in particular for Rachel's healing and her cancer at the end of service. I pray even now for wisdom for them to navigate through this trial, or I would say to continue to navigate through this trial that they that began two years ago. I pray the same for us, Lord, that because trials are part of life on this side of heaven. Uh, we're either in a trial or we're heading toward one. Uh, we need the wisdom to navigate well. When we're in them, I ask that you'd use me as your vessel to help each person here understand wisdom, and I could say, understand what it isn't, as well as what it is, how it applies to our lives. Uh, we want to glorify you through what we experience, especially our suffering. And we need wisdom for that, Lord. And so whatever you want to say to your people during this time, I pray that it would become clear, uh, bring to mind the things that I've studied and put in my notes, and if there's anything not in my notes that you'd have me um that you'd have me share then bring that to mind lord i thank you for this time pray you can be pleased with it and we ask this in jesus name amen i'd like to turn your bibles to james chapter one we've reached an important point in our series on wisdom you can say we've been building up to this message I said I wanted to preach on wisdom and, in particular, how we need wisdom to navigate through trials. Because typically, when we talk about trials, if someone preaches on trials, they're going to say something pretty close to the need to endure it or persevere through trials and how trials test our faith, and all that's true, um, how trials mature us, and that's a very important to understand and to consider. But I think what isn't as oftenly taught or understood about trials is the need to have wisdom to navigate through them well. And so that's what led me to want to preach on this series. And we've reached the sermon that I think um, most captures that thought. And so the previous sermons laid the foundation for this sermon. I want to begin with a story that illustrates why this is so important to me. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I became a Christian in my early 20s, and I knew almost nothing about the Bible at that time. And one of God's graces was surrounding me with men who had two things in common. First, they were men who knew God's word very well. And second, they seemed to be men who were very comfortable answering all the questions that I had. And I've been told that I ask a lot of questions. And I want to say, if you think I ask a lot of questions now, you should have seen how many questions I was asking when I first became a Christian. And so God put these men around me who would sit and uh, very patiently you know, respond to all of the, all the concern. I mean, sometimes it was concerns versus even questions about God's word and what it was saying. There was one gentleman in particular I want to mention. His name was Barry Branham, And I've mentioned him a few times in other sermons because he was so influential to me. He was a mentor to me and he passed away unexpectedly in a sleep a couple years ago. And so I'm thankful for any opportunity I have to honor his name by mentioning him in this way he had some children so he wasn't very old he had some children that were about my age and i became very close to the family at that time i was pretty estranged from my family and so that family became uh, pretty much like my family and he had this midweek study at his house and when the study would conclude we'd spend time after and so i was a school teacher at the time and i remember it was during summer vacation and the problem when you're a school teacher during summer is you don't have to get up for work the next day, and you kind of a, you kind of project that on everyone else. You forget that anyone else has to get up for work the next day too. And so we'd stay up really late sometimes. And he never made me feel rushed. He always had uh, time, and you know we'd be I don't know how many hours we'd talk. And his his next question to me would always be, "Is there anything else? Is there anything else?" And so he really helped me. He gave me a framework for understanding God's word. I feel like I could. You know, just go on and on about how important this uh, man was to me. But I'll just uh, leave it at that and say one more thing. A, a good thing he did was point me toward some wonderful Christian books. I believe that God providentially um, gave him the titles that were going to be most important to me or helpful for me at that time. And one of the books that was very, I, I would say, life-changing was Knowing God, by J.I. Packer, and one part in particular was J.I. Packer's discussion of wisdom in that book. Um, I've said a few times that wisdom is uh, not what people tend to think it is. And, in fact, some people, their understanding of wisdom it's almost closer to what a false prophet is. And what I mean by that is some people tend to think that wisdom... Allows you to know why God does what he does and be able to sit back and say, Well, he did it for this reason or he did it for that reason. And if someone is to say that, then they they look very wise. And when I read um, Knowing God, I saw that uh, J.I. Packer gave this completely different illustration for wisdom. And so I was thankful in my early life that this understanding allowed me to avoid many of what I would call the charismatic pitfalls. The charismatic pitfalls, some of them were introduced to me. And I was able to recognize them simply because of what this book said. And then I saw God's word agree with it, that that's not, it's, that's not what wisdom is. It is not wise when someone, uh, let's say a pastor, a Bible teacher, stands before his congregation and says, you know, God is doing this for this reason, or God has done this because of this. Now, someone can sit back and they can say, they can say, God did this, if they can recognize there, there was a trial or there was a difficulty because God is sovereign. And so we can't say that God did it, but we can't say why he did it. We don't, we don't know all the whys. We don't know all of the reasons. And so when a man sort of, I would say pridefully, he wants to look wise before some audience and he stands up and he acts as though he has the mind of God or can declare why certain things have happened, I think it's, I think it's terribly foolish. I think it was one of the worst sins in the Old Testament for people to commit. It was what made them false prophets when they spoke as though they were God. And so that's, that's not wise. It isn't wisdom. When someone, I I understand there's that uh, temptation to want to look like you have all the answers. I'll tell you, in the time that I've been a Christian, the wisest people that I've met have often been the people who can say, I don't know, who can be asked questions and recognize that it goes beyond their understanding. And the wisest answer is, I don't know why that has taken place. I don't know why this is happening in your life. I don't know why this is happening in that person's life. And so what I want to do, because I've alluded to this a few times in the series, is I want to give you the illustration that J.I. Packer gave. I hope it cements it in your mind and then might be as beneficial for you as it was for me. And this brings us to lesson one. Wisdom part one is not being in the signal box. And I'll explain that a little more through the illustration. Wisdom is not being in the signal box. One more thing I might just say about Barry Branham and there's an interesting verse in Hebrews 11:4. It says the Abel speaks even though he is dead. That's kind of interesting to think about, isn't it? Abel, Hebrews 11:4 says Abel speaks even though he is dead. Uh, I can't even say that I know exactly why that verse says that, but I'll say this: that makes me think of Barry and other men who have influenced me because there's things that they spoke into my life that have come out in my sermons. And so because of the investment that they made in me, it is as though some of these men are still speaking even though they're dead. And there's that sense in which I hope all of us are investing in others so that what? When our lives come to an end, we will have invested, made an investment in others that they're passing along or they're sharing that wisdom that we have shared with them, our children, but hopefully others that we've discipled or mentored and it'll be as though we have, we're still speaking even though we're dead. Now the illustration that G.I. Packer gave, I'm going to go ahead and quote him, He said, if you were to stand at the end of a platform at a train station, you can watch a constant succession of train movements, which, if you are a railway enthusiast, will greatly fascinate you, but you will only be able to form a rough idea of the overall plan in terms of which all these movements are being determined." In other words, if you were at a railway station and you're watching trains come in and there's one train that stops, there's another train that starts, there's one, there's one train that enters, there's one train that leaves, there's one train that turns, you know. Um, you're not, I mean, if you happen to like trains, that might, that might be entertaining for you, but you're not really going to have any idea of why all of this is taking place. And then G.I. Packer goes on and he says, if, however, you are privileged enough to be taken up to the magnificent signal box above the station you will see on the wall a diagram of the entire track layout all of the train tracks for miles extending from the station with little glowworm lights moving or stationary on the diagram to show where every train is and at once you will be able to look at the whole situation through the eyes of those who control it you will then see why this train had to stop and this one had to be diverted from the track, and why this one had to be parked temporarily, and why this one started at that time. The why of all of these movements becomes plain once you can see the overall picture. Now, the mistake that is commonly made is to suppose that this is what God does when he bestows wisdom. In other words, to suppose that the gift of wisdom is a deepened insight into the meaning and purpose of events going on around us an ability to see why god has done what he has done in a particular situation and what he is going to do next in other words some people believe that to be wise means to know why god is doing everything that he's doing and we just don't know that we are not in the place of god we don't have his mind as De- deuteronomy 29 29 says A secret things belong to the lord as first corinthians 13 says We see dimly we don't see fully at this what what does it mean to walk by faith except what 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 does it really mean to walk by faith it means you don't know if you knew you wouldn't have to walk by faith then you would be walking by sight or knowledge to walk by faith is to not know why everything is happening but to still trust or still have faith despite the lack of knowledge or even to say despite the ignorance And then G.I. Packer goes on. He says, People feel that if they were really walking closely to God so that He could impart wisdom to them freely, then they would find themselves in the signal box. They would discern the real purpose of everything that happened. And it would be clear every moment how God was making all things work together for good. And that's the end of G.I. Packer's illustration. This is what I'll tell you. None of us know how God is working everything together for good. None of us do. And don't believe people that tell you that they know otherwise. In fact, I might even go so far as to say, if you meet people and they seem to think that they know everything, or they, that's just because they don't know enough to know how little they know. They're so foolish that they actually think they have the mind of God and can determine these things. Those are basically people that you want to get pretty far away from. There are a few big problems with having this wrong understanding of wisdom that j.i packer is illustrating and let's just talk about some of the problems associated with this with this poor understanding first when people view wisdom this way what does it cause them to do it causes them to try to figure out why god is doing all of the things that he's doing it causes them to want to sit back and wonder or sometimes even worry Somewhat anxiously associated with, well, why did God do this? Why did God do that? Why didn't He do this instead? Wouldn't this have been better? I need to try to determine what exactly was going on in God's mind when this happened. Second, the second problem is sometimes, I mean, this might even be worse than the first problem. Sometimes when people are sitting back and they're trying to figure out why God has done what He's done, they can actually think that they have figured out why God has done what He's done. They can sit back, try to determine why this happened, and then falsely believe that they actually know why. Sometimes they can even share that with others. Sometimes they might have a large enough uh, audience that they stand up and say, "Well, this storm hit this part of the country, or there was this disaster." Do you remember when they came? The disciples came to Jesus and they talked about the Tower of Siloam falling or they talked about Pilate shedding the blood of some number of Galileans. And Jesus didn't tell them why that happened. Think about the book of Job. God didn't tell Job why all of those things happened. So one of the worst things to happen is when people come to the conclusion that they know why God is doing what he's doing. Now, the third thing, the third problem with this understanding is if people are sitting back trying to determine why God is doing what he's doing, and they can't understand but they are convinced that wisdom would allow them to understand then what conclusion must they come to about themselves when they can't understand they must conclude that they're not wise enough they must conclude that god doesn't love them because he has given the wisdom to others to know why this is happening but he hasn't given it to them so why doesn 't he think as highly of me as he does about these other people who do seem to understand everything, or they just or maybe they think they 're not mature enough? They think I, I heard this person, and he 's so wise because he understands where everything happens I don't I, I must not be mature enough. I must not be as spiritually mature as him, or spiritually mature as her so <clears throat> now that we know what wisdom is not let's talk about what wisdom is and this brings us to the next part of lesson one lesson one wisdom part two allows us to handle the curves well it allows us to handle the curves well i want to briefly dispel something about trials so that we can better understand wisdom trials and temptations kind of have something in common, and uh, falsely or wrongly. And it, it's the belief that if we are wise enough or we are mature enough, we will not experience them. Let me say that one more time. There's this wrong belief that if we are wise enough or if we are mature enough, we will not experience trials or we will not experience temptations. And I've encountered, I mean, just think about it. How many times have people experienced a trial and they're somewhat blaming themselves. They think that it's their fault. They think that they have done something wrong, that perhaps if they were, if they were more obedient or they were a better uh, Christian, for lack of a better way to say it, that they wouldn't be going through this. But the reality is this. If you're suffering because of something you did, that's not a trial, that's discipline, right? You've done something foolish. Or sometimes people think, I've had people talk to me and they think, well, if I was more mature, I wouldn't be experiencing this temptation. We know that trials and temptations are independent of maturity or let me say it like this we know that no matter how mature or wise you are it does not allow you to escape trials and temptations and how do we know that because the wisest and most spiritually mature person to ever live experienced trials and temptations when he walked the earth and who's that that's christ i mean we can talk about we can talk about maturity but Jesus is the picture of maturity or perfection. We can talk about wisdom. We can grow in wisdom, but Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. He is wisdom incarnate. Wisdom came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And when wisdom was on the earth, wisdom still experienced trials and temptation. And So here's the point about what wisdom doesn't do. Wisdom does not allow us to avoid trials. Wisdom does not allow us to escape trials. So if that's not what wisdom does, then what does it do? It allows us to handle them well, or it allows us to navigate through them. There are lots of ways to think about wisdom. We could say that wisdom is the correct application or the correct use of knowledge. We could say that wisdom is making the morally correct decision in any situation. In other words, wisdom is knowing the right thing to do. Yesterday, Katie and I were... Or last night katie and i were looking at each other and asking what should we do right now we were trying to determine we we were really seeking wisdom because we wanted to know what would be the right thing and katie said well what would christ have us do and so i mean we were looking for wisdom at that moment trying what would be the right thing to do at this moment in this situation we're facing we might say the wisdom is godly behavior in difficult situations or trials let me ask you is it hard to be godly when you're not stressed or under any sort of or experiencing problems or difficulties who, who, who can't be godly when there's no problems in their life does anyone struggle with being godly when everything is going well no the idea is kind of like the cup you shake you can't see what's inside the cup until it gets shaken up and so wisdom is godly behavior despite difficult circumstances or trials or we could say wisdom is the practical skill needed to live life to god's glory wisdom Allows us to live in a way that brings glory and honor to the Lord. I think all those are very appropriate, or I could even say, even wonderful ways to view wisdom. Let me go back to J.I. Packer's illustration of what wisdom is. So I'm quoting him again. He says, If another transportation illustration may be permitted, he said, Wisdom is like being taught to drive. What matters is the speed and appropriateness of your reactions or how you respond to things and the soundness of your judgment. When you're driving, you don't ask yourself why the road should narrow or turn right where it does. You don't ask why that van should be parked where it is, and you don't ask why that driver should hug the crown of the road so tightly in front of you. In other words, when you drive, you're not asking all these questions. You're not trying to figure all these things out. Instead, J.I. Packer says, you simply try to see and do the right thing in the actual situation that presents itself the effect of wisdom is the same it enables us to do just that the right thing in the situations of everyday life or in other words wisdom helps us handle the curves of life and this brings us um, go ahead and take a look with me brings us to the verses i wanted to consider this morning look with me in james 1 starting at verse 2 i'm going to read verses 2 through 4 pretty quickly James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience, and let steadfastness or patience have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you recognize these verses? They're some of the most well-known in Scripture. I preached on them before. Pastor Nathan preached on them back in May. So I'm not going to draw too much attention to them, except there's one point I want you to take away. It says that trials tests us. Just notice that. It talks about trials, and it talks about testing. And this brings us to lesson two on your inserts. Trials are tests requiring wisdom. Trials are tests requiring wisdom. Briefly look down with me at verse 12 in the same chapter, James 1:12. It says, "Blessed is the man who remains steadfast." under a trial or in a trial and then it says for when he has stood the test he'll receive the crown of life which god promised to those who love him so what does he do what what is what connection does james make here he says when you're in a trial you're actually in a what you're in a test or when you're in a trial you're being tested that's what he says and so he's just making this connection for us and i would encourage us to view trials this way because if you understand that trials are tests and tests are trials then what are you going to want when you're in trials so that you can pass the test you're going to want wisdom the greek word for test in verse three or excuse me the greek word for trial in verse two it's pyrus it occurs 21 times in the new testament it means adversity affliction trouble sent by god to test or prove one's character or faith the greek word for test it's dokemion and it means that by which something is tried or proved a test. And this word dekemion only occurs one other time in Scripture. You don't have to turn there. But I'm going to read two verses from 1 Peter 1. And I want you to listen to how close, how much these two verses sound like James 1 verses 2 through 4. So 1 Peter 1 verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, which sounds a lot like James 1 two, Count it all joy so he says in this you rejoice so now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials same language as James 1 2 and then he says so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ so just like James Peter also says that trials are tests tests or trials think about when god commanded abraham to test isaac genesis 22 it says after these things god tested abraham and said to him and then gave him that command to sacrifice his son now when god tested abraham commanded him to sacrifice his son what was that also definitely for abraham a trial i mean one of the worst trials for anyone to have to experience i mean it was a severe test but it was also one of the most unimaginable trials for anyone to have to endure. I mean, it was only a test. So Abraham wasn't it, the test wasn't to see Abraham sacrifice his son. The test was to see whether Abraham would sacrifice his son and we know that because the angel ended up stopping him but, but Abraham didn't know that. And for him so it, for him it was an unbelievably difficult test or trial. Keep this in mind and look with me at verse 5 james 1 verse 5 if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask god who gives generally to all without reproach and it will be given to him all right now give me your attention here's what people unfortunately do with this passage they preach on verses 2 through 4 and they talk all about what trials the maturity that trials produce and then in their minds, it seems like there's this very strong, clean break between verses 4 and 5, as though what follows in verses 5 through 8 has nothing to do with what's written in verses 2 through 4. So then when people preach on verses 5 through 8, they treat it completely separately from verses two through four and then they talk almost extensively about wisdom so they kind of have like these two sermons they go like this verses two through four we'll talk about trials verses five through eight we'll talk about wisdom they don't really have anything to do with each other james was just kind of talking about one thing and then apparently he wanted to talk about something else i mean the problem with that is james didn't write the bible james didn't even write james in a sense god wrote james through james right and God doesn't make mistakes. It's not like, you know, you can think, well, James was distracted. He's talking about trials and he got distracted and decided to talk about wisdom. No, that's, that's not what happened. God was talking about trials and then he decided to talk about wisdom for what reason? Because when we're going through trials, we need wisdom. If you don't, if you don't see this, if you miss the context, I, I cannot tell you how, how shortchanged you are in understanding this wonderful important truth that god has contained here i mean the reason that james starts talking about wisdom is because he was talking about trials and just how important it is for us to have wisdom when we go through trials so that we can pass the test that we are experiencing I want you to notice something important at the end of verse look at the end of verse 4 james 1 verse 4 he says The trials are going to allow us to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then at the beginning of verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Do you see the parallelism there? James is talking about lacking nothing, and then he says, but if you do happen to lack something, in this case wisdom, you can ask for it, and God will give it to you because he doesn't want you lacking anything this brings us to lesson three God wants to give us wisdom during trials or you could say God wants us to have wisdom during trials I want to give you a a brief theology lesson you know don't tune out sometimes things are technical and it's like people sort of stop listening God's attributes are divided into two categories. Those that are incommunicable and those that are communicable. One more time. All of God's attributes are d- divided into two categories. Those that are incommunicable and those that are communicable. Incommunicable is kind of a fancy word for not communicated. And so God's attributes that are incommunicable are those that are not communicated to us. What are some of God's attributes that we don't share with him well, when Rachel and Jameson were doing their special, and they repeatedly said, God doesn't change. That's God's immutability. Do we change? I mean, we change every day. Especially, you know, you think about your life and how, how much different you are week to week, month to month, year after year. How unbelievably encouraging is it that while we change, while circumstances change, while the world around us changes, God never changes? That's his immutability. That is not communicated to us. He is the anchor for our lives. We are, we are, we're not even an anchor for our lives. We can't, even count, we can't count on anything. Do you understand control is an illusion? Do you understand that? I mean, you are deceived into thinking you have control. And the moment that you start to believe you have control, what does God do? He shows you that you don't. He shows you that you have no control over your circumstances and over your life, that everything is changing and the only thing that doesn't is God. Sovereignty. God's sovereignty, that attribute, refers to his control over all of creation, his power. We are not, we don't, that's not communicated to us. We're not sovereign. We don't even have control over our lives. God's omniscience, which is to say that he knows everything. We are not omniscient, we don't know everything. His omnipresence, that God is everywhere. We're not everywhere. We can be in one place at a time. Now, the second group of God's attributes, the communicable ones, are ones that God communicated to us when he created us, which is why in Genesis 1, it says that God God made man what? In his image. What does it mean to be made in the image of God except that he communicated some of his attributes to us so there are these ways in which we are like him and freedom god experiences freedom and he has communicated some of that to us we are free moral agents we are not robots there are limits on things we can do but within that sphere of allowance god has given us we all experience an amount of freedom mercy we can be merciful we can extend mercy to some and just and on others sometimes we don't extend mercy sometimes we don't extend mercy when we should and god says that he will give mercy to whom he will give mercy. We can be merciful like God uh, is merciful. Creativity. God is creative. Now, obviously, obviously, we are none of these things as much or as far as God is, but there is still an amount that's given to us. We can be creative. God is creative. Look around at the world. Have you ever considered just for a moment what God could have done? He could have given one tree to us, One fish, one bird. Instead, we get this one kind of dog. I mean, we're talking, Johnny's talking about um, dog breeding and you get to choose from all these different kinds of dogs. Why does God do that? He's one, I think he loves us. He wants us to enjoy creation, but because he is creative, all of the colors, all of the different aspects of creation are revelations of his creativity. He has given some of that creativity to us. Now for this morning's sermon, God's wisdom is a communicable attribute. He is all-wise, and he shares some of that wisdom with us. Listen to this verse, Romans eleven thirty three. 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. This verse is all about how wise God is. I mean, if you consider the context for Romans 11, it's it's almost like paul is considering the things that god is doing with israel and with the church and as he works through this he finally just erupts in this in this doxology at the end of the chapter where he explodes in this praise for god as he considers all of god's ways and it's almost a little microcosm of what we're talking about in the sermon because in romans 11 you you might be tempted to think well romans 11 Is the opposite of what you're saying romans 11 is paul understanding why god did what he did no romans 11 is paul saying what god did and then erupting in praise basically because he doesn't understand it because it goes so so far beyond what paul's wisdom or knowledge or understanding there's a there's a world of difference between seeing what god does and saying he did that, which we can do. You can look at what God does and say that he did that versus saying why he did it. In Romans 11, Paul's just describing what God is doing. But he bas- when he says, how inscrutable are your ways and how unsearchable are your judgments, what is Paul saying? He's saying the same thing we're talking about. You can't understand why God does what he does. And then as Paul Tried to fathom the unfathomable, it's like it just went so far beyond him. He says, God is so much wiser than, than I am. I can't help but just praise him and give him glory and honor, and he erupts. Now, here's my whole reason for saying this Paul shares about this tremendous, unfathomable wisdom that God has, and he's willing to share some of that wisdom with us. And here's what's really beautiful about James 1, verse 5. He does it generously. He does it liberally. God doesn't sit back. He's not stingy. I suppose when you have that much wisdom, you don't have to be stingy with it. You can give it to people very graciously and generously as God does. And so in these verses, we see two things that God does with trials that are very gracious. One of the things God does with trials that's very gracious, which 2 to 4, verses 2 to 4 discuss, is he matures us or sanctifies us or grows us through trials but then after that the other thing that god graciously does with trials is he gives us the wisdom that we need to handle them well i mean how terrible would it be if god was to introduce trials into our lives or you could say introduce us into trials and then what just leave us alone you know to fend for ourselves and have to figure out what to do And so he doesn't do that when he does introduce trials into our lives he also graciously will will give us if we ask for it the wisdom we need to handle that trial well verse five it's worded interestingly i think my wife pointed this out and i appreciated the observation when we were going over the sermon it says if any of you lacks wisdom isn't that kind of a funny way to word that as though there's going to be some people that are going to what not lack wisdom you know if any of you lack wisdom or those of you who lack wisdom, and then the others of you who don't lack wisdom. I mean, if I was to say, okay, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, just go ahead and raise your hand if you don't lack wisdom. Don't raise your hand. You don't want, you'll look real foolish if you do that. But, so the point is, the verse doesn't mean what it looks like it means. Instead, James means, when you lack wisdom, go ahead and ask for it. And in particular, when do we lack wisdom, or when do we most need Wisdom except when we're going through trials to know how to handle them well. When we're, now, maybe it's just me. You can decide for yourself whether you, you're similar to me in this respect. When I'm going through trials, here's what my prayers typically sound like. In other words, instead of asking for wisdom during trials, like verse 5 says, what I generally ask for is something like this. Lord, please make the trial stop. Please... Please take the trial away. Please end my suffering. God, will you please bring this to an end? And I'll be the first to say that I, I'm not, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with those prayers or requests. If we're supposed to bring everything before the Lord, I mean, what, what would be more important for us to bring to the Lord than our trials and suffering so that he can help us through them? So there's nothing wrong with praying for God to take away trials, but one thing we should ask for is wisdom. Now for me, maybe you, I don't think you have to be a pastor to have experienced this before. Has someone ever come to you and they, and they were going through a trial and they asked you to pray for them and, they, and you could tell how they wanted you to pray for them, but you didn't actually know if that was what was best for them? Has that ever happened? Someone came to you and said, hey, will you pray? And they don't, they don't just say, will you pray for me? But they actually say, will you pray for this to happen? But we don't know if that's what's best for them. And so you kind of sit back and you think, well, I, I'm not, I mean, you, don't, you might not say this out loud. You almost hope you can pray in a way that doesn't offend them. So sometimes we're trying to figure out what to pray for people when they're suffering. Sometimes we're even, or in a trial. Sometimes we're even trying to figure out What to pray for ourselves when we're suffering or when we're in a trial and so here's what i can say one thing you're always going to be safe to pray for people is for them to have wisdom and so anytime someone comes to you when they're suffering or they're in a trial and you don't know what to pray for them you can completely safely pray for them to have wisdom and when you're going through a trial and you might wonder how to pray for yourself even you can pray that god gives you wisdom and i say that with absolute certainty absolute confidence because that's what this verse says The god says if any of you lacks wisdom ask for it he wants to give it to us when we're in trials but james doesn't just tell us how to ask for wisdom or excuse me he doesn't just tell us to ask for wisdom he also tells us how to ask for wisdom look with me at verse 6 He says, let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Notice the verse starts with the word, but it's a, it's contrast. So James says, yes, ask for wisdom, but make sure that when you do, you ask in faith with no doubting or else you're like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro by the wind. And this brings us to lesson four. Doubting produces unstable lives. Lesson four, doubting produces unstable lives. Just hold on for a moment. Why would doubting produce unstable lives? Because then we're not going to have wisdom that we need to navigate trials or that we would need to have a stable life, right? Okay, hold that in mind so we can see the progression as we go through the verses. Now, Hebrews 11.6, it communicates something similar, that when we approach God, we must do so in faith, or we must do so believing, not doubting. Hebrews eleven six. 6, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God, whether to ask for wisdom or anything else, must believe or have faith that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Or in the language of James 1, have faith that he is going to give us wisdom. So whenever we draw near to God, for whatever reason, through his word through prayer through worship we must draw near with faith believing now to be clear about something there is a world of difference between doubt and unbelief i believe i've said this before uh if there's even one person who hasn't heard this I it could bear repeating unbelievers experience unbelief what a believers experience all of us doubt let me say that one more time it's important i mean i've had enough people come to me concerned that they might not be a christian when they were experiencing doubt unbelief is what unbelievers experience every believer experiences doubt and and here's why on this side of heaven is there any part of you or your life or your faith that has not been affected or tainted by sin just shake your head now sin has affected it has tainted every single part of your life on this side of heaven. None of us are perfectly sanctified, which means that sin has even affected our faith, which means we are going to doubt at times. We and and that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian, but it does mean this. You're sinning. <laughs> I can't, I mean, I can't water it down so much that I deny the sinfulness of doubt. Doubt is a sin. I, I've told you before, sin. Not all sin is the same, so I'm not putting doubt on par with, you know, murder or adultery, but doubt is still sin. Listen to this verse, Romans 14:23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, and whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Or whenever there's not perfect faith, or when there is some doubt, then that is sinful. Now, when this verse talks about doubting. In particular, it has the idea of doubting God's willingness to give us wisdom. We doubt, or basically we doubt the truth of verse five. We doubt that God actually wants to give us wisdom. When I was a school teacher, I used to put up some of these posters on my uh, classroom wall. I look back now and I think some of them were kind of ridiculous. It was kind of like self-help, worldly stuff. I don't mean worldly like immoral. I just mean worldly almost more like silly. And one of the posters I had because I was trying to get my students to be confident and believe in themselves, right? It said, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And that sounds so profound, right? Um, you know, because if, if you believe in yourself and if you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. So you want every student, you know, to attack that math problem, believing that he can do it. Well, I mentioned that because that's kind of i think of something close to that when i read this verse because here's the idea if you believe that god is going to give you wisdom or you doubt that god is going to give you wisdom or you believe he's not going to give you wisdom then you're right that's the point you are going to receive what you believe that's what he's saying here and the comparison it's fittingly made to a restless wave in the ocean And Paul uses a similar language to describe people who don't know what they believe theologically. Listen to this, Ephesians 4.14. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This makes sense, right? Paul is just saying that we should know what we believe. It doesn't mean we have everything figured out, but we should know theology or doctrine well enough that when we hear something unbiblical or unsound that it doesn't toss us around like a wave in the ocean have you ever met someone like this you're maybe you're discipling or talking to someone and they seem to have a sound theology but then they hear a sermon that conflicts with that and then suddenly they're just tossed around they believe this one moment and they believe something you know some um they believe something else another moment they hear this sermon and then they come and they talk to you they're convinced of this and they hear another sermon and they're convinced of something else that's what it's talking about toss to and fro like a wave the reason i'm mentioning that besides the fact that paul uses the same language in ephesians four fourteen that james uses in in james in james 1 is that james is saying we can be like this regarding our belief in god giving us wisdom where well, we're back and forth and back forth it's like oh god is going to give me wisdom and tell me what to, oh now he's not oh he's going to give me wisdom you know just like that wave and how do you look then you look very restless you look very unsettled that's why there's this imagery for us think of peter when he's walking on the water and you'll have a a good physical illustration of the spiritual reality so let me just ask this when peter first got out of the boat did he have faith he did yes he did i mean he wouldn't have gotten out of the boat otherwise faith is what allowed him to take i mean could you get out of a boat and try to walk on water except i'm not telling you that you should do that don't do it but for peter to do that he definitely had faith at that moment but then he starts to see the wind the storm and the waves doubt creeps in he starts to sink matthew 14 31 jesus immediately reaches out the hand takes hold of him and jesus says to him oh you of little faith why did you doubt and so when he says oh you he didn't say oh you unbeliever or owe you of no faith, but owe you of little faith because you've allowed an amount of doubt to creep in and now he's sinking. And so Peter is kind of like this wave of the sea that's being tossed around. One moment he has faith that he can walk on water, you know, the next moment he starts doubting. And it's important to read this here because at least if you're like, if you're anything like me, when are you most tempted to doubt? For me, It's during trials. That is when I am most tempted to doubt. I am most tempted to doubt God's love for me. Now, I'm, you can, I can share this with you, and you can listen and say, well, Pastor Scott, how can you doubt that? I mean, I've heard you preach different than that. Yeah, I preach different than that. I need to, I need to preach to myself too. <laughs> I mean, I preach this stuff, but I need to remind myself of this. I share a scripture with you, but I need to share scripture with myself. A funny thing that happens is that I want, if you want to grow as a preacher, I think it's crucial to listen to yourself. You must listen to your sermons. It's humbling because you're going to notice all of your mistakes and things you wish you'd have done or said that you'll cringe. You'll listen to your sermon. You know, cringe. and like, oh, ah, you know, I wish I hadn't said that. Or I wish I would have said that differently. But it's an interesting thing to listen to your own sermon and be convicted by what you're saying because you recognize that you're not doing it, right? And so I need to preach to myself. And so during trials, I'll doubt, I might doubt God's love for me and think, well, if God loved me, then I wouldn't be going through this. I might doubt that God will work things together for good. I, I know Romans 8, 28. But then I'll go through a trial and I'll think, God, I don't, I don't know how you would work this together for good. In fact, I don't even see how you can. I don't know what good you could bring forth from this. I can doubt that God will give me the wisdom that I need. I'll, you know, I know what James 1, 5 says. If I ask for wisdom, he'll give it to me. But I doubt that. And so it's very important to read this verse about doubt in these verses about trials because i believe that's when we are most tempted to doubt and if we do doubt so this is what james says james says don't doubt when you're in a trial ask god for wisdom and have faith that god is going to give you the wisdom you need to navigate through that trial well or to handle the curves well Look what we should expect if we doubt. Verse 7. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. In other words, if you believe, you believe you'll believe you receive faith or believe you won't receive faith, you're right. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. The double-minded man, he can't figure out what to do. He's of two different minds, and so he's unstable. And this makes so much sense because... If you just think of the understanding of wisdom that we've talked about up to this point, what does wisdom do? It allows us to make the right decision. It allows us to handle the circumstances of life well. So then what does it mean to not have wisdom? It means to not handle circumstances well. It means to not know what to do. It means to face a situation and not know the right course of action. So wisdom is going to allow you to have a stable life. Wisdom is going to allow you to stand firm d- d- you know despite the storms going on around you or whatever's happening. Be that house that stands. The parable of the two builders, the wise house is the one that stands despite the storms beating on it. That's what why is why is that the wise builder? Because he has the wisdom to withstand the storm or whatever's happening in his life so he can stand on the rock. What happens to the foolish builder or the house without wisdom? So much instability, the house collapses. Now, why am I saying that? Look at the end of the verse. It says, a double-minded man who's what? Unstable in all of his ways. Cannot stand complete instability no idea what to do doesn't know whether to go left doesn't know whether to go right and that's what it looks like when we don't have wisdom and i want you to notice something it doesn't just say unstable in trials it's almost like right here with this verse james moves beyond trials he's no longer talking about being unstable in trials he it says unstable in all of his ways and why is that what in what area or areas of life do you need wisdom? All of them, every single one of them. There's no area of life where you don't need wisdom. You need wisdom for your marriage. You need wisdom for your parenting. You need wisdom in your workplace. You need wisdom even when you're resting to know how much or how little to rest. You, so we need wisdom for every single aspect of the Christian life. And that's why it says for the person who lacks wisdom, they are going to be unstable in all ways or in everything they're not going to know how to do anything well but let me tell you something very encouraging that's not what god wants for us if we are one of his children i want you to notice something and i think it's important because it's one of the clear points that these verses are making and i I'm not concluding yet. Don't close your Bibles. I'm always hesitant to say that I'm coming toward the end of the sermon. I kind of want everyone to think the sermon's going to be stretching on for a few more hours, even when it's like the last minute of the sermon, okay? (laughs) So don't don't close your Bibles, even though we're sort of getting toward the end. I, I just want this to be, I'm sharing this at the end because it's one of the main points that I want you to take away, even though we read it earlier. It's, I'll say it like this, the inviting language Particularly of verse 5. God wants you, wants me, wants us to have wisdom. Look in verse 5 with me. He says, If any of you, as opposed to what? If some of you, or if the most mature of you, or the most obedient of you, let him ask God. It's an invite. Let him go ahead please do. God is saying come ask me and then he says he will give generously. He'll give, he'll lavish us with it. Not being stingy, not a small amount that he measures out for us. And then he says to all he gives it to all. There's no discrimination, he says without reproach. What does that mean without reproach? It means without discrimination. He's not looking and saying, well, I mean there's this believer, and i will give to him no not him no not her without reproach to everyone all that would ask for it and then and you're wondering well is it really going to be given he says it will be given you're wondering is god really going to do this for us he says it will be given to you you just must have faith so consider this wonderfully encouraging inviting language of this verse and why would it be the case that god wants us to have wisdom Here's something else that's very encouraging to me in my studying this week. God wants us to have wisdom because he's for us. Now, I despise prosperity preaching. I despise health and wealth doctrine. That's not what this is. When I say that God is for us, I don't mean it the way that it's it's meant with people who pervert the gospel. When, when people pervert the gospel and they say, hey, God is for you, what they mean is God wants you to have a life absent of trials. God wants you to have a big fancy house and God wants you to make millions of dollars. That's not what I mean. When I say God is for you, what I mean is he wants you to handle the trials well that are gonna be introduced into your life. That doesn't sound like health and wealth, does it? I'm actually saying trials will be introduced into your life. That's the opposite of health and wealth. But the good news is, they when they're introduced God wants you to handle the trials well because he is for you he wants you to pass the test that you face he's not looking for your failure God is not sitting back saying oh I can't wait to see Pastor Scott mess this up no he's saying he's saying I will give Pastor Scott the wisdom he needs to be successful and by successful handle the curves well or navigate well through this situation He knows we need wisdom and he wants to give it to us we see this in the book of proverbs proverbs is written as this father who's speaking to his son because the father wants the son to have what wisdom i mean that's what it's about the father talks to his son about you know 30 or 40 different topics giving him wisdom on all of them because the father wants the son to have wisdom so he can handle all of life's issues questions difficulties and the reason I'm mentioning that, you say, well, what's the point? Well, the point is the father in Proverbs pictures our heavenly father. And so what the father in Proverbs wants for his son is what our heavenly father wants from us or for us. He wants to give us wisdom. And I'll close with this. The greatest wisdom that the father wants to give us is found in Christ himself. 1 Corinthians 1, Christ is the wisdom of God Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Our Heavenly Father gave us wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came from heaven to earth, wisdom came from heaven to earth. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. He's wisdom incarnate. That's the wisdom, the premier wisdom that the Father wants to give us. And we are to receive that wisdom or we are to receive Christ without what? Being tossed to and fro without being like a wave of the ocean and we don't know should is Christ for us how does has Christ taken the punishment for my sins has he not take am I completely forgiven am I not completely forgiven am I completely righteous in Christ am I not completely righteous in Christ that's what it looks like to be tossed to and fro regarding the gospel look like that wave of the sea am I you know am I fully saved is there do I have to do something did Christ do most of it, and there's still this other part that I have to do? And so, to receive the wisdom, the way these verses describe is to fully trust in the sacrifice that Jesus has made, the sufficiency of it, the the greatness of it, the completeness of it. That when Jesus says it is finished, it truly is finished. The sacrifice for our sins and so if you have done this you have received the greatest wisdom available because you have received the gospel if you haven't done this you have made the most foolish decision or are making the most foolish decision because you are rejecting the gospel and you stand condemned before god repent of your sins look to christ to be saved father we thank you for the gospel we thank you for the wisdom that is found in your son and we thank you that after coming to faith in your son, you give us wisdom to live what? live life in a way that pleases you and in a way that brings you glory and honor. So give us wisdom, if for no other reason than that, that we can live in a way that pleases you and brings you the glory and honor that you deserve. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.